question with regard to uh, when instructions are given to stay in the body. I, I have a general sense of it, but I'm wondering um, what it might mean um, in the context of not necessarily formal sitting, but outside of sitting, right. and um, whether it's referring to um, staying with a particular focal point, um, or, or and, and doing a body scan, or other than that. Hmm. The question was about what it means, what the instruction means to stay in the body, especially uh, outside of the sitting time, just in moving about. I would stay quite simple with it, in the sense of uh, feeling the most predominant sensation in whatever you're doing. So for example, usually as we're moving about, the movement itself is predominant. So you can either feel a particular part of the body as it's moving, for example when you're reaching, the feeling of the arm. In walking about you could feel the movement of the legs, or sometimes just feel the whole body moving, it's like the whole body moving through space. Uh, there's no one right way to do it, any one of those ways in terms of staying connected to the actual feeling of it. It's very helpful because when you're with that, then the mind's not lost in some mind-created world. And it's very good training for living mindfully outside in the world, because we move about in our lives. I think that if it's a quickly passing thought that doesn't take you away, you don't particularly have to stop walking. You just see the thought go by. But if you've been lost, and if there's a kind of barrage of thoughts, it can be very helpful to stop and really pay attention, noting the either just thinking or the particular kinds of thought it is, you know, planning or judging or whatever. One of the things that I find interesting to do in terms of illuminating illuminating the nature of our life is to make a point of recognizing the difference between our experience when we are lost in what I call these mind-created worlds and the simplicity of simply being just in the moment's experience. Because often we may, we may notice that we're lost, whether we stop or don't stop in, in either case, and just bring our mind back, but not really pay attention to the difference in the quality of our experience in those two situations. It's so strikingly different that it becomes a very positive reinforcement to stay awake. Because it's so ridiculous. <laughs> and the things we spend probably most of our lives in these worlds that are created that have no reality other than of simply being an unnoticed thought. So, so it's to take the time to appreciate what's going on. Do you follow? And it's, it's really quite energizing. And, and we begin just by practicing that, uh, we begin to get less and less seduced you know, by, by those thought forms because we've recognized so clearly what it is, that it's just this mental creation. Right. Right. 
Right, right. And, and just appreciating the phenomenon of it, you know, what it is that's happening. You know, it's expressed very well in a this, this sort of a little Taoist saying, which just captures, I think, the essence of your question, where it says, non-action is not inaction. To really begin to see the difference. Inaction means pulling back from experience, not doing anything. Non-action is that quality of mind <clears throat> that's responsive without being reactive. So, for example, there can be a situation that calls for a response, that really calls for some kind of action. We can either do it from a place of balance, of understanding, of wisdom, of stillness, or we can do it because we're identified with our own reaction to it. Those are two very different places and have very different outcomes. Now, mostly for people with untrained minds, untrained in awareness, mostly we are identified very much with our own reactions to things. And so we become identified with the anger, identified with the depression, identified with whatever, and we're not responding from a place of clarity. We're not responding from a place of compassion. Which, ha which happens when it's neutral or slightly annoying? Uh, uh. I think frustration is a slightly more active, activated, excited, irritated kind of feeling, whereas boredom is in the way I understand it, is sort of more flat. You know, disinterest, that boredom is a kind of disinterest, and frustration is a, what's the word? There's an abrasive quality. It's not simply disinterest, it's like we dislike it. We dislike what's going on in some way. But anyway, keep looking and uh, you could write the book on the difference. <laughs> I mean, all of, the, all of this is really self-discovery. It really is, you know, it's just whatever, whatever particular you know, mind state is your thing, you can become the expert in it, <laughs> of, of these fine distinctions, which are really quite useful. And, uh, In different traditions of Buddhism, uh, there's a variety of uh, approaches to the dream state. Uh, for example, in Tibetan Buddhism, there's really a whole dream yoga, and there's a very systematic technique for working with becoming lucid in dreams. And in Vipassana, there really isn't. It's not. It's not really part of this tradition. Um, what happens is that as the mindfulness gets strong through the day, at a certain point, quite naturally, 
at least at times, the awareness of the mindfulness begins to come into the dream state and you do know you're dreaming. There's no particular thing you should do with it, but it just happens. Um, I mean, there are many techniques of <coughs> inducing lucid dreams. Um, of course, another possibility is to sleep so little that there's hardly any dreaming. <laughs> you know, where you're just, you're out and then three or four hours later, you're back on the cushion. Uh, which can also happen, you know, as the practice goes on and you have more and more energy. If after the retreat, as I said, there are, there's a lot written about that. But within, within this context, there's really, uh, you don't really have to do much. Well, I think there, I think there actually is a wholesome kind of disgust, you know, and it's all. We, we have to be careful with language because each word has so many different connotations and people hear it in so many different ways. But when you read the Buddhist texts, there's a lot of that, of sort of disgust with samsara. It's not disgust, really, it, it's not the disgust of aversion, and that's where the language gets a little tricky. But it's I think I mentioned in one of the last question periods, just that, that point in the practice in a variety of situations where the mind says, enough, you know, just enough already of this. And it's not, again, it's not with judgment, it's not with aversion, but it is with a kind of strength of clear seeing, this is not going anyplace, this is unwholesome, and we use our sort of wisdom. So you have to look in your own mind to see whether that feeling is really on the wholesome side of clear seeing, or it's mixed in with a kind of aversion. Have energy, stay up. I mean, one of the great gifts of a retreat is you don't have to get up and go to work the next day. <laughs> you know, this is, if if you have energy and you're practicing all night, so you sleep a little bit in the morning. You know, and that's you can really go with the energy when it's there. That would be my suggestion. I'll say on the other hand now. <laughs> on the other hand, if for whatever reason you do that, you know, you really get into your own rhythm of practice and your hours become wildly fluctuating and you find that in some way disconcerting, throwing you off balance, you know, where you're not able just to go with the rhythm of it, but you're finding it's really disturbing in some way, so then I would say, don't do it. 
you know, and follow the schedule. But I would give it a shot. Because there are times in the practice, you know, and it, it may be starting to happen, it may happen later in the retreat, it may happen in your next three months retreat, but there are times when we really just plug into this energy source where our need for sleep is tremendously diminished. You know, it's not, an, it's not something that we're forcing in ourselves, it's just we're awake, we're, we're energized. I think it's, I think it's very helpful just to, to keep the practice going, then it can get very powerful. There's Upandita told one story which is very hard to believe, but it's a presumption of truth. <laughs> he said there were monks who would come to the center in Burma who didn't sleep for three months. That was impressive. <laughs> I never came close to that, but uh, definitely had the experience of you know, lots of energy coursing through and then just practicing a lot. Yeah, I think that would be okay. You could do a few different things at that time. If you're going in and out of a drowsiness while you're sitting, you could sit with your eyes open to help stay, maintain an alertness. You could do more walking meditation, you know, at that time. So you could really use the energy in a, in a good way. question in the back? So asking also about sleeping and different sleeping patterns. If, for example, there's a need for six or seven hours sleep, uh, could one just as well either take it all at a stretch or split it up into two sessions of three or four hours apiece? I think generally it's better to sleep at a shot and then to stay wakeful the whole time. The, the whole rest of the time. Um, one thing you could experiment with, and I've done this a lot and found it very helpful, it's like find what feels the right balance for you. Where, of enough sleep where you wake up and you feel wakeful and energetic and you basically have good energy through the day. Okay, And it will be different for each one. Some people need less, some people need a little more. Then after some time, a week, two weeks, three weeks of staying at that level, what I found very helpful is just to begin reducing it in small increments. So if, for example, you're sleeping seven hours or six hours, try sleeping six and a half or five and a half. And what I found is by reducing it in, or even 15 minutes, but by reducing it in a gradual way, it actually became quite easy and natural to sleep less and still feel rested and energized. So you want to work with it, you know, but you can do it in, in quite an organic way. It could be helpful to do. Um, 
I would definitely start including in what you notice times of desire and aversion because these are major <laughs> these are major forces in one's life and I think it's helpful to really become familiar with them as they arise so that you can be mindful rather than being lost in them that's different than taking a sitting and noticing really making the note through the sitting with each object of pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. That as just out of interest. You, know, you could either take a sitting or part of a sitting and do that, just so you get sensitized or attuned to it. It um, doesn't have to be a regular practice. Um, with intention, again, it's helpful to begin to bring that in. There are many more intentions in the day than you will ever notice. Because there's an intention before everything. But you can begin to notice those intentions before predominant movements, predominant actions. And it's a refinement. It really helps to just make the mind, the awareness, more clear, more precise. And you begin to see a very important link between the mind and the body. You see that the body by itself doesn't move. And this in turn begins to reveal a lot about the meaning of anatta, or selflessness. So it's, it's a... What say? The awareness of intention is a point of experience that opens up to many realms of understanding. But do it again from a place of interest in understanding how things are working rather than as a task. And if you do it as a task, the mind gets very tired. If you do it just because you're interested to understand, how is it that the body moves? One time, this was years ago, I was, in, I was practicing in India, I was up in the mountains. And I was just taking a walk on the road outside where I was living. I just stopped in the middle of the road and I was waiting to see what it was that would make me start moving again. <laughs> you know, I was standing there and kind of, there was this little blip of an intention to walk which would come, but it wasn't nearly strong enough to actually get me to move. So I just stood there for the longest time. And it was interesting to see what finally was strong enough to initiate the movement. I'll give you a clue. This is a big clue. <laughs> Very big. Which you could really experiment with in, in terms of investigating. It's said that movement masks dukkha. That movement masks dukkha, suffering. So just to observe that. You know, if that's true in your experience, how often it's true. And that itself is a very powerful insight you know, into what motivates us in our various activities and into our relationship to the experience of dukkha. Now, how much of it is just quick, unthinking avoidance. You now you can see it in the sitting, and this is something you might also do. Just the slight shifts of, of position you might make. You know, they really might even go unnoticed. Just it's really a masking of dukkha. Something gets a little uncomfortable, we don't want to feel it. So we shift a little bit. Sometimes, did we talk about kind of vow sittings or, you know, where you, where you just take a period of time. It could be a whole sitting if you're really experienced, you know, and you, it could be for half an hour, it could be for 15 minutes, whatever frame of time works for you, 
Take a period of time where you make the vow, the resolution, I'm not going to move. Let me die. Really, I mean, with that kind of strength. See what happens. See what reveals itself. It's very powerful. You know, and it strengthens the practice tremendously to do that. Again, do it for the period of time that for now seems workable. And you can begin to extend the time. When I, right at the beginning of my meditation, when I was studying with this teacher, Galanka, in India, part of his courses was three of the hour sittings during a day he called vow hours. It was intense, <laughs> because especially at that time, it was toward the beginning of my practice, and just incredible pain. You know, but he was really strong that people do it. Uh, it was particularly... <laughs> frustrating because he would start the vow hour and he'd start it with chanting and then he'd leave the room and particularly in this one sitting he'd go off into his room which was just off the meditation hall and have tea and be chomping on an apple (laughs) 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 I'd be sitting there with this nail going through my knee so okay last question I don't be great for you to sit for two hours. <laughs> you know, every way, uh, every way is a good way at some times for some people. I, it was very hard when I did that. It was very hard. I learned a lot from it. Other people, it might not be the right approach for where they are in the practice. So there's no kind of general rule. It's definitely good in the amount of time you sit. It's arbitrary. There's nothing holy about one hour or two hours or 45 minutes. It's just it's to create some form where there's a discipline of being willing to be with things that we might not ordinarily be with. You know, and so people find the form that really works for them. Okay. So the first one, there's no self. How can it be reborn? (laughs) That's an all-time favorite question. That question really can be extrapolated to not only if there's no self, how can it be reborn? But if there's no self, all the things I mentioned the other night in the talk, who's making effort, why did we come, who falls in love, who remembers, it's all the basic question. The way to understand it, I think there's really quite a simple example. To say that there's no self does not mean that there is no continuity to this process of change. What it means is that there's no one unchanging element that is carried along. So, for example, if you plant a seed in the ground and the seed grows and becomes a tree and has fruit and the fruit has new seed, the seed falls into the ground and it grows again, a new tree, new fruit, there's nothing which is carried in that process. It's not that the first seed is carried up the trunk of the tree into the fruit and then somehow splits. It's rather a process of transformation. Seed, depending on conditions, becomes this, becomes this, becomes this. So it's a process of continual change and transformation. The Buddha called it a process of becoming. This process of becoming follows laws. It doesn't happen randomly. You know, in the case of a tree, we know we plant a certain kind of seed, we get that kind of fruit. In the case of our life, 
the law governing the unfolding process is the law of karma. If certain seeds are planted of greed, of hatred, of love, of compassion, those seeds condition the transformative process and bring certain fruits, bring certain results. But there is no one particle or one element or one thing that is carried along. And so in the same way that we could understand selflessness within this very process right now, each moment conditioning the next, conditioning the next, conditioning the next, in exactly the same way, death consciousness conditions rebirth consciousness. Nothing carried but the last moment of this life conditions the arising consciousness in the next moment. All of this is summed up in one short stanza of the Buddhas, which I'll just paraphrase, I don't remember it exactly. There's acting without an actor, doing without a doer, suffering without anyone who suffers, enlightenment without anyone who becomes enlightened. Got it? <laughs> okay, so much for that one. <laughs> the second question. The second question is a long one, which is all about how the insight of selflessness and the kind of insight we have in practice either translates or doesn't translate into our life in the world, into our life of relationship. Is it manifest in some way? Or is it simply some insight we have in practice and then in our life we still are operating from a sense of self, a sense of I? If there is a genuine level or a genuine realization at whatever level of selflessness, egolessness, then I think it must manifest in how we're living. And a sign of that, some very simple signs, is really to see whether or not we're living less defensively, less aggressively. Because where do those things come from? They come from a strong sense of self. There's a strong sense of I, we need to protect it. Or we, we act from it out of that place. If we've understood that this really is a process of empty phenomena rolling on, then as things come up, we're not particularly defensive about it. Because we don't claim it as being I, we don't claim it as being self. We're in a certain relationship in the world and something happens and we don't like it. Do we constellate around that dislike? Do we constellate around that aversion and contract? Or through the understanding of emptiness, the understanding of selflessness, do things wash through? It's not that we may not feel unpleasantness or even feel aversion. Different of the hindrances will come. But if there has been a real understanding of selflessness, we don't get so caught. You know, we just see it as another arising experience. So I think that's the measure. You know, one of the uh, Tibetan teachers I heard once, he, he, put it, he put it very simply. He said, if the practice does not weaken the force of greed and the force of hatred and the force of delusion, it's worthless. So they're very blunt. <laughs> you know, that is the point of wisdom. The point of understanding is to free ourselves from the suffering caused to ourselves and caused to others by these defilements, by greed, by hatred, by ignorance. So that's the measure of our practice of whether it's deepening or not. Is those forces weakening in us? Could you review the four reflections for inspiring practice? So those four reflections which turn the mind towards the Dhamma. 
The first is the recollection of this precious human birth, both in terms of taking birth as a human being, but even more specifically within the context of human birth, how precious and rare it is to have this situation which allows us to practice. You know, when you just look at the world, it is extremely rare. So that reflection really can inspire a lot of self-respect and also a sense of real spiritual ardency. Because the conditions are fragile. The second is the reflection on impermanence. The third is the reflection on karma, that each of our actions brings results. And so are we paying attention to the actions we take, that they're not happening in a vacuum. And our life is the unfolding of karmic results. It gives us, it's tremendously empowering when we reflect on that, because then we really have the inspiration to make wise choices instead of just sort of acting out old patterns. And the fourth reflection is reflection on the defects of samsara. Meaning the endlessness. The endlessness of the cycle of rebirth from life to life, from year to year, from day to day, from moment to moment. Now how many times in this last sitting were we reborn in a thought, in a feeling, in a whatever. This is just this endless process going on and on and on and on. Where is the end to it? One of the questions my first teacher, Munindraji, used to ask all the time, where is the end of thinking? Where is the end of seeing? Where is the end of hearing? Now, how many things do we have to hear to be satisfied, (laughs) or to see, or to think? There's no end to it, as long as we keep being reborn in those experiences. Can we rest in the awareness of all that freely? Okay, this is the last one. Clearly, expectation leads to trouble. (laughs) But on the other side, without any expectation, there can be a feeling of listlessness or lack of hope, how to stay balanced. I think there's a difference between understanding expectation and understanding a sense of purpose and goal. We can have a goal in the practice, and we do. Even though in some circles, goal is a dirty word. (laughs) But the Buddha talked about a goal. You know, he talked about it in many ways. It's the goal of awakening, the goal of liberation, the goal of enlightenment. That's why we're doing it. So can we hold that vision of where the path is leading, where it's unfolding, and realize that the very path to this goal of awakening, the way to accomplish it, is by resting precisely and easily in the present moment. But that is the way that the unfolding happens. Expectation is that part of the mind that comes in, which takes us out of that attention to the present moment, of wanting something else. So in that sense, expectation is actually an obstruction to the goal. It's keeping us from actualizing it. And it's a very different sense. If you you want to climb a mountain, you could be inspired by the goal of getting to the top, and yet you really have to pay attention where every step is going. Otherwise, you slip and fall off. So you pay attention to where you are, but you hold the vision of the top. And in that way, the inspiration inspires the effort, the energy. Is that 
I got the first part. <laughs> Let me answer that and see if the second part is addressed. The first part of that question was really important. Distinguishing between those pleasant, unpleasant, neutral feelings and the responses which they condition. In other words, the desire and aversion is the conditioned reaction to something being pleasant or unpleasant. Because it's pleasant, when we're not mindful, there's the habitual reaction of attachment. We like it, I want it, let it stay. When something is unpleasant, when we're not mindful, the conditioned reaction is aversion. Push it away, don't like it, get rid of it. The feelings themselves come about in every moment of experience. We can't control the feeling. That is happening in every moment. It's either pleasant or unpleasant, or neither, neutral. Right there is where the Buddha talked of breaking the link in this chain of dependent origination. If we're mindful of the feeling, mindful of the pleasantness, then it doesn't lead to attachment. We're simply resting in the experience, the awareness, pleasant. We're feeling it, we're feeling the pleasantness of it, but we're not grasping at it because we're being mindful. And in the same way with unpleasant. And I'm sure you've had this experience when you're sitting with pain, you know, at those times, even if it's brief times, when you're sitting and you're feeling the unpleasantness of it, but the mind is not reactive. You're just feeling it, just feeling unpleasant, but there's no aversion in the mind. So that distinction is critical. It is, or it can be very helpful to note pleasant, unpleasant, you know, because it helps to stay mindful of the feelings rather than be conditioned by them. And using that insight retro... What, retroactively, retrospectively, I'm going backwards. At those times when you've been caught, and especially if it's a pattern in which you've been caught often, you could go back, just reflect back, and see in the experience in which you've been caught, what was the feeling there? Right? Was it some experience that was particularly pleasant? Was it some that was particularly unpleasant? Because in that understanding, you will find the hook. <laughs> Sometimes it's like that. <laughs> when the mind is equanimous, sometimes there's, I think the confusion can happen because, for example, if you're watching pain, the painful sensation, the sensation itself could be painful. If the mind is quite calm and equanimous, there can be a pleasant feeling in the mind right? because the mind is not agitated. And so you might actually be picking up the unpleasantness of the physical sensation, the pleasantness of the mind state, you know, and then sort of mixing them together, thinking that it's a feeling about the same object, but it's actually about different objects. So that could be one explanation of it. Did you follow that? Or you look. Sometimes it might not be predominant. 
it, it, there might not be a predominant flavor to it. So I w Okay, just, just be with that experience, that's all. Yeah. You don't want to overanalyze things, because that just gets the mind thinking and taking you act out of how you're actually how you're actually being aware of it. Did you hear? Okay, the question was sometimes as the practice goes on and the mind is collected and calm and concentrated, there's a feeling of wanting to sit longer. Should one just note those and get up and follow the schedule or, or continue to sit and maybe walk less? Uh, I think it's fine to start doing some longer sittings if you feel that. Uh, the schedule is completely arbitrary. We just made it up. <laughs> so there, there is absolutely nothing holy about this schedule, except as it reflects our divine wisdom. <laughs> the one, the one caution, you know, in sitting longer, or a couple of cautions. One is. It's fine to sit longer as long as you're really being mindful. Because sometimes people can get into a very comfortable sit, but it's really a dreamlike state. That's not so helpful. You know, but if the awareness is clear. But then don't neglect the walking. If you sit longer, then do a good walking period. That is going to put you out of sync with the schedule. So you either might have to sit a little bit in your room or simply wait until the next scheduled sitting to come into the hall again. Because we don't want people coming in and out of the hall continually during the sitting. Just one other comment about that. If you find that you're walking in this walking room during a sitting period, it would be very helpful if you could close the doors to the hall. Um, so it'll just keep the hall quieter. Uh, I think you have to notice a couple of things. One is, notice the tone of the note pleasant. Because you could be making the note, but actually not being mindful. In other words, you could be making the note, oh, pleasant, pleasant, pleasant. <laughs> Where the note itself is an expression of the attachment. Okay. So it's not, the, it's not simply the note that assures that you're being mindful. You really have to, both by seeing the tone of the note and also the quality of your mind, as you're noting pleasant, is it from a place of being not identified with it? Okay? It may be that that freedom from identification with the pleasant feeling is only a moment, and in the next moment you feel like you're caught up again. But if you continue noting in that way, it's like... This is an image which doesn't make a lot of sense, but it's... <laughs> you know, if there's a kind of cloud of attachment, or anger, or whatever it may be, and each note that really is an expression of mindfulness is just like poking a hole in the cloud. And at a certain point, there are enough holes in it so that there's not enough cohesion and the whole thing falls apart. So you want to just keep noting it, you know, until that happens. Uh 
Okay. Do you then note the wanting, the enjoying? Okay. Pay attention to the quality of the mind in the moment of noting wanting. Okay? Because in the moment that you're noting wanting, you are not wanting. But you have, that's a very delicate, you have to really be very precise to see how in that very moment, the mind is released from the grip of the wanting, even if it comes right back again. But if you recognize that space of freedom, that's the beginning, actually, of deconditioning the attachment. Yes, if, if you actually recognize or pay attention to the quality of the mind in the moment of making the note. It's the same thing with anger. You know, when you are noting anger, anger, in that moment you are not angry. Well, sometimes when we hear a lot about that, it can have it can have two kinds of effects. It can really be inspiring, or it can create a kind of ambitious striving, which actually takes us out of the practice. And so, it's just to watch for that danger. But it's not, it's not inherent in, the Buddha talked a lot about enlightenment, but if we start kind of obsessing about it in our minds, we actually... Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.